This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Christopher Columbus had a plan. For years, he had desperately begged the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, to fund his expedition west around the world toward what he believed would be Asia. And for years, the monarchs had refused him, wary of indulging such a costly voyage. Spain was already engaged in an expensive holy war to force Catholicism onto the nearby Muslim territory of Granada, a war that was hogging most of their resources. But while the war eventually ended, Columbus persisted. And in 1492, he was granted permission by the royal court to journey out onto the ocean in search of faster trade routes to the Indies. He would cement Spain's place as a major world power. His plan was coming together. For Columbus did indeed plan to find a route to Asia. But he had ulterior motives, too. You see... Columbus believed that the Garden of Eden, the lost paradise of Adam and Eve, still existed. And while he wasn't certain exactly where it was, he was quite certain that he was destined to find it. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our first episode on the Garden of Eden, the mythical paradise described in the book of Genesis, which has played a vital role in religion, literature, and culture ever since. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. In this week's episode, 
we'll explore the original story of Adam and Eve and their banishment from the garden, as well as various interpretations of the garden in modern Abrahamic religions. We'll also investigate precedent for the garden in other ancient mythologies, in hopes of finding clues to its meaning and exact location. Plus, we'll spend some time getting to know the many explorers, conquerors, and fanatics who have attempted to locate it over the centuries. Next week, we'll examine newer theories about the Garden of Eden, whether it exists to this day, and the radical suggestion that we've spent 6,000 years misunderstanding the meaning of the Garden entirely. Before we can tell Columbus's story of Eden, we'll have to start at the beginning. No, not with his birth. A little earlier than that. The very beginning. It's a story of creation. The creation of man. The creation of woman. And the story of how these first humans took the land of paradise with its bountiful food and a close connection to their creator and squandered it. A tale of temptation that has worked its way into the very psyche of humankind, not just into our religions, but into the fabric of our societies. The Garden of Eden, the definitive paradise, heaven on earth. And no one's seen it since the first people were exiled. Quote, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. End quote. So begins a translation of the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden. We'll mostly be working from the King James Version of Genesis throughout the episode, though we'll paraphrase the biblical language for ease of understanding. Now pay attention. Every real clue we have about the Garden, its location and its meaning, is contained in these verses from the Old Testament, barely a thousand words in length. And yet... Those words have provided millennia of discussion over their symbolism and historical accuracy. Genesis describes how God created Eden, bringing up, quote, a mist from the earth that watered the whole face of the ground, end quote. It was a verdant land that offered Adam, the first man, every tree that was good for food and pleasing to look at. And in the midst of this abundance, God grew two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The garden was not only covered in ample lush greenery, it was also home to the mouths of four rivers, named in Genesis as the Gihon, Pison, Hedekel, and Firat. These rivers began in Eden, but flowed as far as Assyria, or modern-day Iraq and Iran, and Ethiopia, as well as into the land of Havilah, which Genesis describes only as a land rich in gold. Its modern-day location remains unknown, but theories on its whereabouts include India and Egypt. God tasked Adam with tending the garden and allowed him free access to all of its offerings. All, that is, except for the fruit from the tree of knowledge. God warned Adam that the fruit would kill him. To prevent Adam from growing lonely, God gave him a companion. God put Adam to sleep and in his slumber pulled a rib from Adam and used it to create the first woman, Eve. When he awoke, Adam declared her to be of his own flesh, and so he was bonded to her, man and woman, intended to live together as one. They lived as they were born, naked, unashamed, and well-fed. Of the garden's many animals, the serpent was its most shrewd. It approached Eve one day and asked her, quote, 
Was she not allowed to eat the fruit of any tree the garden had to offer? End quote. Eve replied, quote, Any tree except that of the tree of knowledge, as that fruit will kill us. End quote. The serpent promised that it would not kill her. In fact, he said it would open her eyes, allow her to know good and evil, and in effect, give her the wisdom of God himself. Convinced by the serpent, Eve ate some of the fruit from the tree of knowledge and shared it with Adam. Soon, the two became aware and ashamed of their nakedness and covered themselves with clothes they had sewn from fig leaves. But when they heard God approaching, they hid. Upon discovering them, God asked why they had hid from him, and the humans explained that they were afraid he would see their nudity. At once, God realized what had happened, that they had eaten from the tree of knowledge. And so he banished Adam and Eve from the garden, cursing Eve forever with subservience to Adam and with painful childbirth. He cursed Adam to forever eat food from the ground worked for by the sweat of his brow rather than the easy sustenance of the garden. And he cursed both of them with eventual death before sealing the entrance to Eden with a spinning, flaming sword made impassable to all mankind. He guarded the entrance with cherubim. Not the chubby, naked babies often depicted today, but, as described later in the book of Ezekiel, four-faced beasts with wings, hands, and lightning-fast reflexes. And so Adam and Eve were left out in the wilderness to fend for themselves, having been expelled from paradise. That's what Genesis tells us about Adam and Eve. From here, we'll have to get interpretive, discussing what scholars, writers, and religious leaders have inferred over the centuries. The differences in their interpretations and the various ways they drew meaning from the text will help us find clues of the garden's existence and help pinpoint its possible location. But first, we need to dissect some of the major symbolism in the book of Genesis and look at how the story evolved over time. We'll also explore the mythology that Genesis might have borrowed from, some of which was already thousands of years old. You might have noticed some key details were missing from our reading of the biblical text of Genesis, elements that had become codified in our cultural memory of the tale, but which actually came from later writers. Poet John Milton, in his 1667 opus, Paradise Lost, imagined the events of Christian creation uh, a little differently. Cast into hell, the former angel Lucifer seeks vengeance on God, who has just created mankind and placed them in the Garden of Eden. In Milton's version, Lucifer takes the form of the serpent in order to deliberately tempt Eve to partake of the fruit of the Tree of Knowledge and to corrupt mankind. Milton also says that the fruit of the tree, the fateful food that led to Adam and Eve's banishment, was an apple. But in the original text, the serpent is never defined as Satan. That became a common interpretation after the fact. This is largely because the Jewish tradition in which Genesis was written sees Satan quite differently. For one, Lucifer is non-existent in the Torah. And the Satan that does exist in Hebrew scripture is more like a general impulse towards sin rather than a sentient devil sabotaging humanity. This is in contrast to Christianity, where Satan and Lucifer are different names for the same being, a fallen angel 
mentioned in the New Testament, who rules over hell and all the demons within. As for the apple, some were quick to say that the garden, therefore, must have been located somewhere where apple trees are indigenous. However, others theorize that the only reason an apple became the default choice of fruit is because of a pun. In Latin, the word for apple, malum, is similar to the word for evil, malus, which kind of makes sense. Eden is the ultimate example of one bad apple spoiling it for the bunch. Milton was merely following in the Western tradition by choosing the apple, drawing from a dominant Latin translation dating to the 4th century AD. Scholarly theories about the original fruit's identity include everything from figs to grapes to psychedelic mushrooms, but nobody really knows. So, unfortunately, the vegetation won't help us locate the garden. Prior to the Torah, Semitic peoples practiced polytheistic religions, many of which believed trees were sacred. They loomed over every other living thing on earth, and from the perspective of a human lifespan, must have seemed immortal. The two trees in the Garden of Eden might have represented the key aspects of divinity as viewed in the ancient world. Immortality from the Tree of Life, and wisdom from the tree of knowledge. This symbology runs in contrast to ancient Sumerian and Assyrian cultures. Those legends preceded Genesis by as much as 2,000 years and believed trees could link them to the gods and their concordant powers. Because of this, the story of Eden is often interpreted as an intentional departure from tradition. At the time, it would have been somewhat radical to declare that only God could have access to divine powers and that for man to broach that territory uninvited would lead to his downfall. There is another departure from common symbology at the time. In modern tellings of the story, the serpent is almost universally depicted as a snake. It certainly explains why humans fear and dislike snakes. They were portrayed as deceitful and untrustworthy from the get-go. But in cultures like ancient Egypt, snakes were often considered good omens, particularly when presented in an upright, vertical position. Egyptian and Mesopotamian religions held that the snake represented the divinity of nature, that snakes were infused with some traditional notions of godliness. At the end of Genesis, when God takes the serpent's legs away, the writers of Genesis essentially turn the snake horizontal, contrasting with the positive vertical depiction of it in ancient cultures, and in essence, rejecting its role as any sort of deific being. At times, Genesis reads like it's intentionally designed to overturn the myths of the cultures that preceded it, and for good reason. Its intention was to establish the new, one true religion. The writers of Genesis knew they needed a creation story that would wipe the slate clean. But they also understood that by drawing upon old myths for inspiration, they could spread their message across countless cultures to every corner of the earth. We'll examine interpretations of the Garden of Eden story and its rumored relocations after this break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
And now, back to the story. Genesis had an enormous influence on the millennia that followed. For one, it was the launch point of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. This may account for our enduring interest in the location of the garden and our desire to find a way back. It's clear that the story of humankind's expulsion from paradise struck a chord with audiences. The story of Adam and Eve has ingrained itself in Western culture and worldwide religions. Baptisms, for example, performed across numerous Christian denominations, are meant to erase the mark of original sin. The original sin being Eve's decision to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge. It's clear that the story of Eden was influential, that much of our culture evolved out of this book. But it wasn't written in a vacuum. Genesis was equally influenced by the mythology that came before it. Eden wasn't the first time gardens were placed front and center in mythology. If there were a real Garden of Eden, it's safe to assume that some cultures would have mentioned it before 500 B.C., when Genesis was written. We've said that the book of Genesis was, in many ways, a repudiation of the legends and stories that preceded it, perhaps because it sought to establish itself as a radical new vision of the world. But it also borrowed heavily from familiar mythology in order to lend credibility to this unfamiliar new religion. By learning more about the stories that influenced the Eden myth, we'll hopefully find more hints about the original garden, wherever it was. After all, if multiple cultures made gardens central to their religions, it stands to reason that there could have been one original inspiration, a real Garden of Eden, maybe one still present on Earth to this day. And plenty of these cultures did write about garden paradises that might very well have been the basis for Eden, often with geographic details that could help us find them. In fact, the very concept of paradise has always been associated with the garden long before Genesis. That's right. The English word paradise comes originally from the old Persian phrase peri deitza. It meant literally an orchard surrounded by a wall. Or a garden. And ancient mythologies were quick to present these peri deitza as idyllic divine places described in the book of Genesis. Take the epic of Gilgamesh, for example, a Sumerian poem from at least 2000 BC. It recounts the travails of King Gilgamesh as he seeks the fountain of youth. When his comrade Enkidu was killed, Gilgamesh traveled to the Garden of the Gods and begged them to resurrect his friend. The gods refused, saying that death is an immutable part of humanity. To survive death, to be immortal, that's a power only the divine may wield. Gods rejecting human attempts at divinity. That sounds familiar. This paradise was known to the Sumerians as Dilmun, and it was not just an abstract mythical concept. In fact, it was a real civilization and one of their key trading partners. The Sumerians believed that Dilmun had once been the site of the Garden of the Gods, and it was situated to the east of ancient Sumer, just as Eden was placed to the east. The Sumerian story of Anki may provide the most clues about Dilmun's connections to Eden, and could perhaps be the key to finding it. Dilmun was a dry place. The paradise was without sickness, without death, and without water. The water god, Anki, knew that water was essential for plants and animals to thrive, and so he ordered that water bubble up from the ground. 
Suddenly, Dillman became a land of abundant flowers and trees, plants and animals, meadows and fields. It became the paradise we think of when we imagine Eden. But Anki couldn't help himself. Another of the gods had planted fruit-bearing trees, and he was eager to taste them. So his assistant gathered the fruits, and Anki feasted. As punishment, Anki was struck ill, and eight of his organs failed. Eventually, the god who made the fruit trees took pity on Enki and conjured new healing gods to bring back his health. One of these new gods was named Ninti. Her job was to heal Enki's poisoned rib. T, part of the god's name and the Sumerian word for rib, was a word that could also mean to make live. The creation of Eve from Adam's rib, then, was probably a pun borrowed from ancient Sumer, especially since Eve's Hebrew name also means to make live. The pun, of course, was lost in translation. Perhaps the most notable similarity between Dillman and Eden, though, was its location. According to the Sumerian tablets, the Garden of the Gods was set between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. These rivers are important clues. For one, the Euphrates is mentioned as flowing from Eden, though in the Hebrew text, it's referred to as the Ferrat River. And the Tigris, which is widely accepted to be the modern name for the Hedekel, is another of the four rivers mentioned in the Genesis account of Eden. And there are more interesting connections to Sumerian legend, too. An excavated clay tablet dating back 4,500 years depicts a Sumerian version of the Tree of Life, one whose fruits bestowed long life and health upon those who ate of it. That tablet was likely carved at least 2,000 years before Genesis was written. Still, these shared elements don't definitively prove the Garden of Eden's existence. The Genesis account, like many biblical stories, could have simply borrowed from its mythical predecessors. Gardens before and after Genesis have long been associated with divinity. Thousands of years after the Sumerians, the ancient Greeks tethered their gardens to religion. They grew them in areas where gods or spirits had supposedly appeared, and they associated trees and plants with specific gods or goddesses. In fact, even the gardeners themselves had a touch of divinity. Eros, god of attraction, was often depicted as a gardener. And in one ancient Greek myth, Eros's mother, Hera, kept a tree given to her by the goddess Gaia. This tree bore golden apples that granted immortality, and she kept that tree... Let me guess, in a garden. The Garden of the Hesperides, in fact. One of the heroic feats that Heracles performed in the Greek myth was to sneak into the garden and steal the divine apples. Stealing divine fruit that grants immortality. Hmm, I'm sensing a theme here. Even philosophers came to view gardens as special places. Plato and Aristotle's schools were established in the kinds of lush groves that would fit right into Eden. The philosopher Epicurus school was actually called the garden, as his teachings became closely associated with their setting. We see the importance of gardens in Babylon as well, as far back as 2300 BC. Their famous hanging gardens were supposedly constructed by Nebuchadnezzar for his wife. They were eventually enshrined as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But of course, the hanging gardens are the only ancient wonder yet to be found and verified as true. 
We discussed the Hanging Gardens in detail a few episodes ago, if you'd like to learn more. For now, we'll turn our attention to ancient Assyria, the Mesopotamian kingdom that spanned present-day Iran and Iraq, founded in 2500 BC. There, we find a depiction of gardens that might truly lead us to the real Eden. A famous relief, or stone-carved panel, discovered in a palace in the Assyrian city Nineveh, depicts a king standing atop a strange structure in the midst of a gorgeous garden. This structure appears to be an aqueduct, a technology for which the Assyrians were famous. Aqueducts allowed water to quite literally bubble up through the ground, just as was described in both Genesis and the Sumerian myth. If so many different cultures and religions agree on the existence of a garden of gods or of Eden, or at least in gardens as places of divine presence, is it possible that these stories were based on a real garden at the foundation of humankind? Over the centuries, even religious leaders have vigorously debated the question of its existence. In Islam, for example, the Quran states clearly that Adam and Eve lived in a heavenly paradise named Eden, not an earthly one. It was only when they were cast out that they found their place on this planet. The Jewish tradition, on the other hand, sometimes teaches that Eden was divided into two sections, one earthly and accessible to humans, where Adam and Eve resided, and the other divine and inaccessible to all but God himself. In the early centuries AD, the discussion, particularly among Christian writers, was ongoing and lively over whether Eden really was a physical place on earth or merely a spiritual metaphor. Countless theologians argued their point in writing. Some excerpts. Around 20 BC, an Alexandrian philosopher by the name of Philo wrote, quote, to think that God planted vines or apple trees or any trees of such kind is mere incurable folly, end quote. In the second century AD, Theophilus, bishop of the church of Antioch, fired back, quote, by the expressions out of the ground and eastwards, the holy writing clearly teaches us that paradise is under this heaven, under which the east and the earth are, end quote. Around that time, St. Irenaeus agreed with Theophilus, posing the question, quote, where then was the first man placed? In paradise, certainly as the scripture declares, end quote. A half century later, in about A.D. 220, Theologian and scholar Origen countered, quote, Who is foolish enough to believe that, like a human gardener, God planted a garden in Eden? St. Ephraim, a 4th century deacon, agreed, quote, Although the words make Eden seem earthly, it is in its essence pure and spiritual. End quote. This back and forth went on for hundreds of years, like an archaic subreddit. Eventually, a sort of reconciled perspective was proposed to unite the various ideas under a unified Christian theory of Eden. Around the year A.D. 900, Moses Barcephus, a bishop near Baghdad, wrote that the four rivers written about in Genesis represented the four cardinal virtues of Christianity, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. But he also added a perspective similar to the Hebrew notion that the garden was a real place where Adam and Eve dwelt, but that Eden itself was paradise and off-limits to humans. His reasoning was that paradise had to be a place both physical and spiritual, 
How else could it delight both the body and soul of Adam as God intended? Cephas also argued that paradise was placed on a site higher than any other point on earth. It sat atop a plateau that rose up from the ground and which was irrigated by the rivers of the garden. In defiance of physics, the rivers snaked upwards along the side of the plateau and then cascaded out the other side as waterfalls. And of course, its placement atop this physically impossible plateau kept it out of reach for modern man. It's a little convoluted, but essentially, Cephas argued that the Garden of Eden was a physical space, constructed of spiritual concepts. This theory caught on, and by the medieval era, was widely accepted as the correct interpretation, especially one part of the theory. Eden was real. It was a physical place on Earth. And as Genesis itself states, it had been rendered inaccessible to humans. Not that this stopped people from searching for it, of course. As we heard, Genesis is full of specific details about the garden, perhaps the most useful of them being the names of the four rivers that flowed from it. The biggest impediment to locating Eden based on biblical information was simply that we didn't know the modern names for all the rivers. The Tigris and Euphrates were generally agreed upon, but the other two, the Pison and Gihon, remain unknown. Some claim the Pison is the Ganges River in India. Others say it's the Nile in Egypt. Josephus, a first-century Judean historian, believed it was the Indus River. Ethiopians have claimed the Gihon to be the Blue Nile, a tributary of the Egyptian Nile that flows through Ethiopia. But this is improbable geographically, as the Blue Nile is over a thousand miles from the other rivers mentioned in the story. Still, there's a plethora of information here, however contradictory. Information that has been used by explorers seeking paradise throughout the centuries. And one of these explorers, one of the most famous who ever lived, would eventually claim to have found it. After this break, we'll follow this explorer. Now back to the story. As the medieval period wore on and belief in the physical existence of the Garden of Eden became common, surely someone, in fact many people, must have gone in search of it. Enter Christopher Columbus. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's been commonly debunked by now that he sought to prove the world was round. This was actually common knowledge in Europe in the 15th century and hardly needed extra verification. The more widely accepted version, that he left in order to pursue a trade route with the East Indies, it's not wrong exactly, but it does miss a key aspect of what Columbus believed was his life's mission, finding the Garden of Eden and bringing about the end of days. Some context. Christopher Columbus was born in 1451 in Genoa, Italy. He relocated early in life to Portugal, then to Spain, where he began sailing with trading vessels while he was still a teenager. In early 1492, the Spanish king and queen, Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile, accepted Columbus's proposal to explore a trade route. But he didn't convince them solely on the virtues of a more prosperous economy for Spain. In fact, his reasons were a little out there. Columbus wrote, quote, I declare to your majesties that all the profits of my enterprise should be spent in the conquest of Jerusalem, end quote. 
This conquest was believed to be a necessary step on the path to bringing about Armageddon and eventually the second coming of Christ. See, Columbus didn't just want to sail to the West Indies. He felt pulled to fulfill a divine calling. This wasn't discovered until 1991, in preparation for the upcoming 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the Americas. Researchers Delno C. West and August Kling uncovered something strange deep within the archives at Princeton. It was a book, its pages uncut, never before examined. When the researchers opened it, they found a never-before-translated book written in Spanish by Columbus himself. It was entitled Libro de las Profecias, The Book of Prophecies. And within these writings, they found ample evidence that Columbus saw himself as a prophet and harbinger to the end of the world. Columbus's Book of Prophecies provides fascinating insight into his mind. It was compiled from various eschatological writings from the Bible and other sources, arguing in favor of the coming apocalypse. Columbus meshed excerpts together in a way that suggested a seafaring man might play a large role in bringing about Armageddon. His plan was simple. As the Bible and his own book of prophecies commanded, he planned to convert all non-Christians, hence his excitement to find a faster way around the world. Then he and his army of believers would march on Jerusalem and rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem, famously destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the 5th century BC. There they would usher in the world-ending events described in the Book of Revelation. While this plan might seem like the stuff of doomsday cults today, it might not have seemed so crazy to Ferdinand and Isabella, who had recently been engaged in a war with Granada. Granada was an Arab emirate within the borders of Spain. It was an Arab-speaking Muslim country of great concern to the Catholic nation that surrounded it. It had resisted the monarchy's many attempts to absorb it, and for much of the 1480s, Spain's money was tied up in a war to capture it. By 1492, they had succeeded at overtaking the small Muslim nation. Riding high on that victory, the notion of moving on to Jerusalem might have been appealing. At the time, Jerusalem was controlled by the Mamluks, a Muslim ruling party. Along the way to conquest and destruction, Columbus believed that his journeys would lead him into the real-life Garden of Eden, the terrestrial paradise from which man was expelled. And astoundingly, written records indicate that Columbus felt like he actually succeeded to some extent. In his report on his third voyage to the Americas in 1498, Columbus wrote, quote, Our Lord made the earthly paradise in which he placed the tree of life. I believe that if I pass below the equator, I shall find a much cooler climate and a greater difference in the stars and waters, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, I believe that the earthly paradise lies here, which no one can enter except by God's leave, end quote. Columbus believed that the waters of Eden descended from a pear-shaped mountain. That place was actually the Gulf of Paria, off the coast of Venezuela, which Columbus visited during his 1498 voyage. Of course, Columbus himself wouldn't have called it Venezuela. He still believed that he had sailed to the East Indies and would hold fast to that belief for the rest of his life. But wherever he thought he was, he was confident it was the gateway to Eden. 
like Moses Barcephus before him, Columbus became convinced that paradise, though placed on Earth, was unreachable by humans. Columbus's direct account of his travels has been lost to time. The geographic information here is gathered mostly from a summary of his journals written by Bartolomé de las Casas, a Spanish historian. To learn more about Columbus and about where his original journals might have ended up, listen to Mayan Richards' other podcast, Gone, where we recently investigated a number of theories about where those long-sought diaries may have disappeared to after Columbus turned them over to the Queen. Christopher Columbus's later years proved disappointing. He fell out of favor with the Spanish monarchy, and he was eventually stripped of his titles. In May of 1506, two years after his final voyage, Christopher Columbus died. He had reached paradise in his own estimation, and he had paid dearly for the opportunity. But even if he was mistaken about the precise location, does Columbus's account confirm the existence of the Garden of Eden somewhere deep in the Venezuelan wilderness? Or was he merely a madman with a profound messiah complex, trying to hasten the end of the world through his own actions? Many more sailors and adventurers would come to believe that they had found the mythical paradise, and some of them were even less cautious in declaring it than Columbus had been. The legend of a Paradisian garden dates back nearly 5,000 years. The oldest civilizations on Earth tethered gardens to the divine. At some point, somewhere... Was there a singular garden that inspired all of these? Next week, we'll use the geographical details given in these stories to triangulate some possible locations for the garden in the Middle East, in Africa, and maybe even in Missouri. And we'll explore another intriguing plausible theory, that the garden was real, that we know its exact location, and that we've misunderstood its purpose for thousands of years will join the ranks of the many explorers who've tried to locate the Garden of Eden and find the way back into paradise. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.